I appreciate Brian's uh, emphasis upon the Word of God. And the prayer that came this morning uh, during our prayer time. By the way, we do have a prayer time before the service, which starts at 9.30. So if you'd like to join us for that, you're all welcome to come and pray for the service. But uh, someone once asked Charles Spurgeon what the key to his uh, success as a, as a pastor preacher was. And he made it very clear that my people pray for me. He said, my people pray for me. That is the key to his success as a minister in the pulpit. And so I, I would like to encourage all of you to remember Terry and myself and Brian and others when we are going to be filling the pulpit and preaching that you would pray for us throughout the week. Pray that God's spirit would anoint. Yes. Steve Rouse is going to be preaching this next week. So be praying for Steve as well. Uh, make this a time of uh, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit coming through the ministry of the Word of God. And my computer is still continuing to open up uh, apps I don't need right now, but that's the way it goes. Here's, let's see what happens. All right, there we are. Now our, our message today, pardon? Is that the right one? No, this is not the right one. This is the wrong message, okay. All right, let me close it. Oh, we got everything going on here now. <laughs> Technology's great when it works, and when it doesn't work, it's a disaster. Okay, here we go. Coming back to this, going to there, and going to differences, here we go. Now let's try that. There we go. Our title today for our message, this is a continuing series in 1 Corinthians. And the title is, Who Makes You Differ from One Another? Not what makes you differ, but who makes you differ from one another. And our key passage, our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 7 through 16. And then we're going to have as our key word, for those who want to make a tally mark each time I say the key word during the sermon, it is the word gift. And so please uh, make a mark whenever you hear that word. Would you like to stand with me for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, beginning at uh, verse 6 actually. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign 
that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I did not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. And we thank you for your servant, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and for the wonderful truth that he articulates in all of his epistles. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and that seeing, Lord, we might embrace the truth and walk in the light of your word in the power of your Holy Spirit and for your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Paul is continuing to address the problem of disunity in the church in Corinth. And so we see, reminding ourselves here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so we've seen that this issue of being carnal as opposed to being spiritual uh, involves the uh, inability to see things uh, with the mind of Christ, to be able to evaluate things in the light of God's word and the gifting of God's spirit and so Paul is making several arguments to discourage and to dissuade the uh, church in Corinth from either elevating one another by their praise for one against the other or by their criticism of one against another. But in every case, it's creating division within the body as they view these ministers of the gospel uh, with the eyes of a natural man, the, uh, the carnality of seeing things uh, from the perspective of this, this world's wisdom as opposed to the wisdom that comes from God. And so even though these new believers are born again, 
they have not yet grown to a spiritual maturity that allows them to stop being carnal. Now, Christ, we've seen, is the only one qualified to judge between us. And so we should leave all judgment to him when he comes. And so we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verses 1 through 5, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, he says, it is a very little or very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now we have a tendency, I know I do, of reading this phrase, then he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, as though that is going to be all bad. That, you know, that God is going to expose you, ornery critter you. He's going to bring it all to light. And yet he ends this paragraph by saying, then each one's praise will come from God. We're dealing here with the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Christ. And in the ancient world, the bema was the standard. You remember seeing the Olympics where each of the winning uh, athletes stands upon a platform where number one, the gold medalist is at the top and then the, the uh, silver medalist is off to this side and the bronze medalist is a little lower and off to that side. But you'll notice that all three of them standing there have received awards. The Bema seat of Christ is not a seat of punishment. It's not a seat of judgment. Uh, that is the great white throne judgment of Christ that comes when all of the unbelievers throughout all of time will stand before God and give an account for what they have done during their lives. But this <clears throat> is the Bema. This is the awards ceremony. It's not a time of judgment in the sense of punishment and, and ridicule and humiliation. The counsels of the heart, now I want you to try to get a hold of this. I want you to picture yourself in a moment in which you're being tempted to sin. And you are struggling against that temptation. You are trying to stand against it, trying to fight it. And you do fight it. And in your heart, you're wanting to have victory. And maybe you succumb to the temptation and you actually sin. That sin was paid for by Christ. Now, I'm not trying to give you a justification for sinning. I'm not trying to give you permission to sin. I'm saying you have an episode in which you are tempted, you struggle for a season, and then you yield and you sin, and you're feeling shame. And the condemnation of Satan is, is pounding upon you, saying, you jerk, you are no, no, you're not worthy. God doesn't like you anymore. God has forsaken you. You're, you're a corrupt sinner. But you know what God reveals here? He reveals the hidden 
counsels of your heart as you were resisting that sin. You were fighting it. And God is saying, well done. You fought. You didn't win that one, but you fought well. This is a rewards, awards ceremony. It is not a day of punishment. We're simply, this is a heavenly father and the son of God honoring his children for doing battle against sin. And whether you win or lose a particular battle, the war itself is won by Christ on the cross. Okay, you are, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They say, but it says that who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Yes, it does. And if you are a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit and you are not in the flesh, but you have to do battle against the flesh. You have to crucify the deeds of the flesh, put them to death, but you are in the family of God and God is not going to eject you after having adopted you. He, he is going to continue to work in you to complete what he has started in you and it will be completed. And when we see him, we will be like him and all of these passages all come together in that moment, right? When we stand before God and we do not receive condemnation, but rather every man's praise will come from God himself. Now, Paul is writing this in order to get the Corinthians and us to stop trying to judge things before the time. To stop trying to play the part of Christ in evaluating whether one is better than the other or one is worse than the other. Leave all of that to the time when Christ returns. Let Jesus be the judge. You just enjoy the benefits of all of these differing persons that you are in relationship with as a member of the family of God, as a member of the local church, as a part of the bride of Christ. And so we're looking today at what causes us to differ. And it's actually not a what, is it? It's a who. Who causes us to differ? And the answer to that question is, we differ from one another because of God's gracious gifts to each of us. And those gifts come in various forms, as we see in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verses 6 through 7. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake. So you know us, you know both of us, and you've been kind of comparing us against one another. And uh, he says that would you, you would learn not to think beyond what is written. Now what is written uh, is the statement Paul has just made in the first few chapters that who is Paul? Who's Apollos? I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who causes the increase. The one who plants is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. And so he said, don't think of us any more than what is written. We are nothing in comparison to what God has done because he's the one who causes the increase so that none of you be puffed up on behalf of. Notice what they're doing. They're not puffed up for themselves, they're puffed up for Paul. They're puffed up for Apollos. They're puffed up for Peter. And they're going against one another saying, my guy's the best. This is a bunch of fans, you know, rooting for their soccer team, okay? 
And, and Paul is saying, stop it. I'm not honored, I'm not complimented by your being puffed up on my behalf. So stop it. Because who causes any of us to differ from one another? And the answer is God. And what do you have that you did not receive? This is how God causes us to differ from one another by the gifts that he gives us. So who makes you differ? God. How does God make you differ? By what he gives you. What do you have that you have not received? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Right? So there's no basis for us to be puffed up for ourselves or for one another because God is the one who causes us to differ from one another by his sovereign decision as to what gifts to give to each of us. So there's no basis for our boasting in our own gifts, nor is there any basis for praising or criticizing the gifts of others. And that is what Paul is going to address here in this extended passage. Instead, we should rejoice in one another's gifts and love the differences that result from what God has ordained for us all. I remember when I was a young Christian and I kind of went through this transition, as many of us did at that time, of taking songs that I had written before I was a believer in Christ and rewriting them to become a song that I could sing in a Christian coffee house as an evangelistic song, okay? And so we've got some pretty squirrely stuff coming through that process. But uh, one of the things that I remember was that there was one particular song that I'd actually sung to Jose Feliciano on the beach in Lake Tahoe. I walked up to him, and I, I, I didn't know who he was, and I asked, would you like to hear a song? And he said, sure. And so I knelt down and I, I played a song and it was entitled, Too Late For Me. Too Late For Me. And it was a song about, you know, uh, mama was a friend of Jesus, but daddy wouldn't say. Though they tried their best to please us, still I went my way on an endless search for some brighter day. Okay, cheesy stuff. But anyway, it was the song that I wrote at that time. And it was I, too late for me to go home. I can't go home, can't go back. I've already walked away from all of that. So. I sing this song to Jose Feliciano, and after I sing it, he says, oh, that's great, can I see your guitar? And I said, sure, and I give him my guitar, and he starts going up and down the frets, and all of a sudden he breaks into, come on, baby, light my fire. Right there on the beach. <clears throat> and everybody on the beach comes gathering around, and uh, he's singing this song for us, and then he hands the guitar back to me and asks me to play another song with all these people standing there you know, so I got my second best song out. <laughs> I'd already sung my best one. Anyway, uh, I sang that, and then he sang a song, and we went back and forth. And finally, he said, you know, um, I really connected with that first song, Too Late For Me. Would you be willing to sell, that, sell the rights to that song to me? And then I can work it up and use it on my next album. He said, you get full credit, you get paid, and it might be a way for you to get into a bigger... Uh, you know, singer-songwriter thing going. And, and so now I'm a hippie, you know, and, I, and I'm having this crisis in my heart. I, 
Should I sell the song? No, I'm a hippie. I don't sell stuff. I give it away and let people tip me if they want to tip me, but I don't, I don't prostitute my art. I'm an artist. And so uh, I was under such stress that I finally went out to the freeway and stuck my thumb out and caught a, caught a ride with an 18-wheeler and got as far away from there as I could. So I couldn't yield to the temptation of selling my song uh, in, in a commercial uh, you know, moment. Now, years later, I told my kids that story and, uh, and they said, Dad, you were an idiot. You should have sold the song. I said, but if I had, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't even be here because I might have gone on to become, you know, somebody. But it didn't happen. And so now, here I am, Greg, the hippie, Jesus freak, playing in the rock in the basement of the church administration building in Centerville. And uh, Keith Green is touring the country and filling some stadiums, you know, and, 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 and I'm thinking, Lord, he is so good. Why can't I do that? Why can't I be Keith Green, you know? Well, the answer is God gave different gifts to Keith Green than he gave to me. But that song entitled Too Late For Me was rewritten. And it became one of the main songs I would sing in the coffee houses. And it was entitled, He Set Me Free. And it starts the same way, but it ends in an entirely different place where God rescued me and brought me back to himself through his gospel. And so we differ from one another because of the different gifts that we've received. And we should not boast in the gifts we have, nor should we be envious of the gifts that others have, because it's God who chooses, and it's his gifts that have been distributed. And so we should just be happy, be content with where we are and who we are. And it's the diversity of gifts and ministries that actually creates the functioning body of Christ that we enjoy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 4 through 6, we read, And there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but is the same God who works all in all. And then going on in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 24b, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, and that there should be no schism in the body. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? He's given these different gifts to the body, different parts to the body, that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so we have this beautiful analogy here that the body of Christ is made up of so many different members who have so many different gifts and so many different ministries. And God, through Paul, is asking us 
to love the differences, not resent them, not be envious, not have a pity party, but to love the differences because it's the differences that allow the body to function. Now, this is not a message on 1 Corinthians 12, so I'm not going to go into it in depth. But the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The eye can see something, but it can't reach out and grab it. And the hand can't reach out and grab it effectively unless the eye can see it. We need one another, and we should love the differences. Some of us have a ministry of uh, preaching the word. I hope that the rest of you have ministries of inviting people to come and hear the ministry of the word. Okay, you might think, well, I'm not the preacher, but yeah, you're the one who can make the preacher's work most fruitful if you can do what you can to fill these seats with people who need to hear the ministry of the word. You're a gift to this body. Participate in it enthusiastically, and you will be helping in ways that that uh, no one else can reach the people that you can reach. Now that's just one example, but it's an important example. We need to all do what we can to play as a part of a team. And we don't all have the same positions on that team. So judging others from a carnal perspective divides the body. It creates resentment rather than rejoicing. And so let us walk in the spirit and have the mind of Christ. Judging that those who suffer more than others as somehow being to blame for that suffering is also a form of being carnal. Now, for a long time I read this passage and I said, Paul, you seem to be jumping around a lot here. You know, one minute you're talking about this and all of a sudden you're talking about that. And what does that have to do with this? Well, as I prayed and I reread the passages, I began to realize that one of the ways in which this body, this Corinthian church was being divided was that they were thinking somehow that Paul was to blame for his own suffering. That somehow just doing something wrong, making himself unnecessarily offensive or annoying. So let's read it with that understanding in mind. <clears throat> you, already, you are already full. You are already rich. Notice the exclamation mark that the translators have put in here. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I, wish, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, at last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Some evidently were saying that Paul's sufferings were his own fault because he was being foolish. Whereas they were not suffering as he was because they were being wiser than Paul. See, this is another form of judging the uh, giftings and the callings and the ministries that have been given to various members of the body. Some of Paul's sufferings was due to Paul's determination to protect him from pride. 
God determined to protect Paul from spiritual pride by intentionally giving him what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh. And so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be, depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Do you see the same list here as we see in the earlier part in 1 Corinthians? And then Paul sums this up by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. To think that Paul was to blame for his sufferings would to be very carnal. To see things in the eyes of the flesh. To not understand that this great man of God is suffering in the way that he is because if he didn't have these sufferings to keep him humble, he would easily be puffed up with pride. Wow, that puts it in a whole new light, doesn't it? Sometimes we look at somebody out there who's struggling and we think, well, why don't they just get their act together? And we don't realize that there are things going on in the spirit, things going on in the, in the purposes of God that are intended to be a blessing, not only to that individual, but to the rest of us as well. And I can see a lot of ways in which this can work. Uh, and I just, I just share this briefly. Sometimes we get hit with a crisis. It may be a health crisis. It, it may be a financial crisis. It may be in any kind of situation in which we, we need help. And we think, oh, no, God, I don't want to be a burden to the body. I don't want them to all come rallying around me and praying and bringing the meals and all the rest and handing me money. And, Lord, please don't let me be that person. And I believe God speaks to us and, 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 and whispers to us, no, but you don't understand. They need to be needed. They need to be needed. Somebody's got to have a need in order for them to be needed. And when they are needed and they respond in the Spirit, in the light of God's Word, the whole body is blessed. Now maybe you one day and it may be somebody else next week, but the body of Christ needs to be needed. And so God allows crises to come into our families and our lives. And so when that happens, don't, don't feel ashamed of the fact that you're the one for the moment, who needs our love? Because we need to love. And you are an occasion for us to love in that way. Does that make sense to you? Can you see what a, what a privilege it is for God to choose to allow us to be the one that mobilizes the body to act like a church, to act like a really great 
local church. And so Paul chooses to make this make use of sarcasm to drive this point all the more deeply. So we're going to read the passage again and take note of, it's kind of obvious, but I think it's important, that he's using sarcasm here. He says, you are already full. You are already rich. Man, you really got it together. You have reigned as kings without us. You don't need us. And he says, I wish you could reign so that we could also reign with you. Because it's hard for us. We're out here doing what we're doing in order to bring people like you to faith in Christ. And you think you've arrived. No, you have not arrived. It says, we are fools for Christ's sake. In the eyes of the world, we are saying things that make no sense at all. But you are so wise as to not say anything that doesn't offend the sensitivities of this world. And so you are not suffering. He's really using a very effective argument here. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. What has God accomplished through you? Right? You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. You are enjoying the praises of the world. We're not. And why is that? It's because we are so closely identified with Christ that people respond to us the way they would respond to Christ himself. When you see someone more mature in the Lord than you are, suffering more for their witness to Christ than you are, consider the possibility that it may be they who are doing something right, and it is you who are doing something wrong. You are avoiding the pain, the difficulty, by simply keeping a lower profile and not attracting the attention of the enemy. They have a saying that it's the tall trees that get hit by lightning. So it may be that you're not getting hit by lightning because you're a stubby little tree, hiding behind all the big trees and then wondering why they're getting hit by lightning. If they would just be like me, they wouldn't get hit by lightning. <laughs> yeah, that's true, they wouldn't. But it's God's plan that we stand strong and tall for Jesus. Then we take the hits as they come. So when you are doing the things that are right, you will suffer. That's the message of the scriptures. In John chapter 15 and verse 18, we read, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world is this worldly system. Okay? It's, the, it's the, the world that lies in the lap of the evil one. It says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this is what we're dealing with. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, we read, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of, of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, 
which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the differences between Paul and those in the, first, in the church in Corinth is different levels of giftings, different, level, different kinds of ministries. They are thinking that they're somehow superior to Paul because they're not drawing the fire of the world. They're doing pretty well for themselves, but they don't realize that the reason that Paul is suffering the way he is is because he has been gifted so wonderfully to take this gospel to the world and people are coming to Christ, including these Christians who are criticizing him. And so Paul is using sarcasm to open their eyes. So do not think that those who suffer persecution are to blame for their being persecuted. It is a consequence that God intends. And not all suffering is from persecution. If, if you read this passage carefully, you'll see there's some distinctions here. He says, for instance, in verse 11, to the present hour we both hunger and thirst, we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, that could be the consequence of persecution if you were in your own hometown, but you could get many of these same forms of suffering simply by choosing to travel. I mean, think about it. As, lo as soon as you leave your hometown, where's your home? <laughs> it's back there, right? You find yourself uh, going longer between meals. Sometimes being between towns and running out of water. You find your clothing wearing out. You may find yourself beaten not by people who hate Christians, but by people who want your money. You know, Paul's traveling in the ancient world. This is a dangerous thing. And so he's saying here, this is what we're going through. We are suffering. Now this suffering may just come from the fact that we're no longer enjoying the comforts of Antioch. But next we see being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now, right up to the very moment, he's saying. So these sufferings are clearly the result of persecution. And so they should be responded to, as Jesus said, by blessing those who curse you, praying for those who despitefully use you. You know, to, to be persecuted uh, may involve violence, but it can also involve social ostracism. When you're being defamed, that means you're, you're being lied about. You know, defamation of character is when people are lying about your character. And uh, the apostles were being lied about. They were being accused of all kinds of horrible things. And it says that uh, when we are persecuted, we endure. When we're defamed, we entreat. That means we plead with people not to distort the truth. We try to explain ourselves clearly so that they at least are not ignorant 
of the fact that what they're saying is not true. He says, we've been made the filth of the world. That means we're discarded. We're, we're shunned, pushed, uh, marginalized, another way to say it. We're the off-scouring of all things. The kind of thing you want to throw away, you want to get rid of, you want to send it to the landfill. Don't want to see it anymore. That's what the apostles were having to endure. And it was all because of their identity with Christ. Persecution is the result of being so closely identified with Jesus Christ that others react to us as they would to him. And that is why it is an honor to suffer for Christ. What's happening is people are so identifying you with Jesus that they're treating you the way they would treat Jesus. And that is a time to rejoice. Rejoice, as we saw today in Brian's uh, reading of the uh, first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because they will. It will happen. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now Paul is warning the new believers that they too will eventually have to suffer for their faith in Jesus just as he was suffering. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. He's just been using sarcasm to say, oh, you guys have got it all together and I'm just a total fool. Well, I got some news for you, kids. If you continue to grow in your faith in Christ and begin to identify with Jesus in the way that I do, you too are going to go through these kinds of sufferings. And he says, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, lots of people like Apollos and, and Cephas and so on are going to come through town and they're going to teach you. And you need to receive that teaching. But you're only, you've only got one dad. I've, I've begotten you through the gospel in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, two verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul speaks to those whom he has actually led to Christ as his spiritual children. And he wants his spiritual children to respond to him as a father in the Lord. Paul is warning these new believers as a father would warn his own children. So Paul calls us to follow and imitate him. Now this is unique. I don't know if you notice this, but Paul is the only apostle to ask his readers to imitate him. Notice, as we see here, therefore I urge you, imitate me. Later, in chapter 11 and verse 1, we read, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Other translations have, Follow me as I follow Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. So there were others who in, the, in the church there in uh, Philippi who were good examples of following Christ, of uh, Paul's example. And so he's saying, I want you to follow their example because they're following my example and I'm following Christ. So why does Paul 
make such a strong appeal. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, and he continues on. Why? Why does Paul make such an emphasis on his readers imitating him, following him? When Paul was called into the ministry by Jesus, Jesus said, I've given you this responsibility to go as an apostle to the Gentiles and to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And he says, and you're going to have this ministry. And I believe that Paul has been provided to the church as the prototype Christian for the Gentile world. Okay. Paul is the only apostle who does this. And he is an example of zeal and devotion to Christ and the gospel that we can, and I believe should, all imitate. You say, well, does that mean we have to all become missionaries? Yeah, it does. <laughs> In a sense, we are all going to be as zealous to take the gospel to the world as he was. Our circumstances may have a controlling effect on how we engage in that, but our heart attitude should be, I want to be as zealous and devoted to taking the gospel to the world as the Apostle Paul was, because the Apostle Paul was devoted to not allowing what Christ had done for us on that cross to, to not be delivered to the world that he died for. And so he's saying, I'm doing this, watch me. Now you follow my example and you do things like this within the context of your circumstances. If you're a child, you do it as a child. If you're a mom, you do it as a mom. If you're a dad, you do it like a dad. But you're going to, within the context of your circumstances, you're going to be just as devoted to taking this gospel to the nations as Paul himself. And so we see this as a rallying cry. By imitating Paul, we are challenged to join him in his life of suffering to advance the gospel to the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is now going to turn his attention to the many other problems in the church. And as we saw before, there are many problems. There's the errors regarding sexual immorality, errors regarding the purpose of marriage, Errors regarding Christian liberty, what we can and should do as Christians. Errors regarding partaking in the Lord's table, whether it's in a worthy or an unworthy manner. There are errors regarding the differences in spiritual gifts, and he spends quite a while on that. There are errors regarding the nature of the resurrection and its implications for us. There were errors regarding the use of money. And all, all of these problems find their solution in the unity of the body of Christ and in seeing all things with the mind of Christ. When we are no longer carnal, many of these problems within the church will fade away. But as long as we are carnal and we're trying to deal with them from a carnal perspective, they will continue to be a perennial problem within the church. And so summing up today's message, Paul is continuing to address 
the problem of disunity in the church by dissuading them from judging one another. Secondly, Christ is the only one qualified to judge between us, so we should leave all judgment to him when he returns. Third, we differ from one another because God's gracious gifts to each of us have given us very different ways to serve. We're different for a reason, and we should rejoice in those differences and love the differences within the church. It is this diversity of gifts and ministries that creates a functioning body where each member can play its part for the good of all. Then, when we do things right by living godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer for it in this world, and it is not our fault. And then finally, the unity of the body of Christ and seeing things with the mind of Christ is the solution to all the other problems. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the riches of your word. I thank you for your spirit. Lord, help us to walk in the spirit in the light of your word and for your glory alone. And may we cease to be carnal. May we stop comparing one another against one another. Stop elevating one against another. Stop thinking that the sufferings in the lives of some are their fault and therefore don't reserve, deserve as much loving care as others. Lord, may we, as a body, truly function as the body of Christ. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.